the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Ghosts of Christmas Future manifest and advises those who haven't got a halfpenny to use the nine-tenths of their brain that they don't use to imagine a Klein's bottle swallowing a Mobius strip, which will send you back in time where you can steal a halfpenny of a nonplussed English squire. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We continue our interview with DJ Butler this time, talking about Serpent Daughter, his new book in the Witchy Wars series. This is Dave Butler's cool alternative 1830s, 1840s America, where magic works and the continent is divided into kingdoms. There's an emperor in the East allied with the necromancer Oliver Cromwell. And our heroine, Sarah, is now a queen sitting upon the serpent throne in the kingdom of Cahokia, where there's lots of magic and elf-like beings and strange man-beasts. And the emperor, well, he wants to conquer Cahokia, as does the animal god Heron King to the west of Sarah. It's really evocative, this book, adventurous, and it's really fun stuff. And Dave will tell us all about it soon. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We are having another amazing ebook special for December. From now until the end of the year, there are discounts on all Michael Z. Williamson ebooks. That's right, it's the Williamson Holiday Mayhem ebook sale. It's a barrage of Christmas season savings on Michael Z. Williamson ebooks. This means $2 off the great Freehold series anthology, Freehold Resistance edited by Michael Z. Williams, with stories by Larry Correa, Michael Z. Williamson, Brad R. Torgerson, Mike Massa, Casey Ezel, and and lots of just a big lineup of great writers. And that book is $4.99 for an ebook that's regularly $6.99, plus through December, $1 off on all other Michael Z. Williamson ebooks, including everything in Mike's legendary Freehold series. Here are the gritty details. These discounts apply wherever Bain eBooks are sold, which includes the Bain website, Amazon, and all the other Bain distribution outlets. So join the mayhem and fill out your holidays with some great reading from Michael Z. Williamson. Can it be true? It is true. Ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays. The December hardcovers and new trade paperbacks are at booksellers everywhere. These include newest Leaden Universe novel, Trader's Leap, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Clan Corville saved Leaden civilization from insurrection within, and its reward has been relentless pursuit by enemies. The exiled clan leadership has sent Clan Corval master trader Sean Yosgalen to establish new trade routes. The sooner the better. Corval's very existence depends upon his success. Also out in December is The Founder Effect, edited by Robert E. Hampson and Sarah L. Medlock. 
2185 CE, humans have conquered our solar system, and now the starship Victoria carries 10,000 colonists to a world beyond. They are the original actors upon the stage of a new world will become the stuff of legend. For on any frontier, it is the pioneers who establish the residences that echo into the halls of the future they hope to build. Call it destiny. Call it the founder effect. Finally, out in December is lost in transmission by Will McCarthy. Brash and idealistic, they were rebels without a cause in a world governed by science, reason, and immortality. Banished for their troubles to the starship New Hope, they now face a bold future to settle the world's Barnard Star. But this crew of rebels will find it as far from the paradise they seek. And worst of all, death itself has returned to humanity with a vengeance. Lost in Transmission by Will McCarthy. The Founder Effect, edited by Robert E. Hampson and Sarah L. Medlock, and Trader's Leap by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, are now available at booksellers everywhere. So, merry, happy, jolly, jolly, jolly to you. This is part two of a two-part interview with DJ Butler talking about Serpent Daughter. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Hey, I want to welcome DJ Butler, Dave Butler, back to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Hey, Tony. Good to see you. That is some hat. Um, it is not the tricorder. Uh, tri no. Or, or the fedora that I started wearing for Hiram Woolley either. But I was wearing this back when Witchy Eye came out. I don't have a people ah. crowned kind of Grand Inquisitor hat. I haven't got one. This is the closest I've got. It's actually uh, it's leather, and I bought it on a business trip to Buenos Aires back in about um, 2004, I guess. And just sat around the house for, for 14 years. And then, uh, and then when I started wearing hats as kind of a, you know, branding authorly shtick, I said, you know what, I should wear that hat. So, huh? So it pretty. I mean, it looks kind of Jim Butchery, like uh, his main character is a bit. Uh, and his hat. Although I think in the book you say Jim Butchery, but I think you're really talking about the iconic covers, right? Because I think in the books the character isn't actually described as wearing a hat. Yes, in the in the covers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it's got a uh, the sort of the sort of link to witchy eye if there is one. Is it's got a little fleur de lis on fleur the de lis. Uh, Maybe that's the Chevalier's hat. That's right. Uh, it makes it one of the bad guys. One of the of. bad guys. Well, let's talk about, all right, let me tell you, talk a little bit about Dave. Uh, DJ Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family, which is a lot more this year uh, it, <laughs> due to circumstances beyond our control correct um he is the author of witchy eye witchy winter witchy kingdom uh which is the first three books in the witchy wars series as well as co-author of dust bowl magic mystery novels which is just what i decided to call them this time um the cunning man and and uh the jupiter knife i don't know what exactly how you would characterize those books but they're really cool 
That's a good characterization. I, I, um, I think technically the genre is occult detective, but that's a little bit of a smallish genre for most people. So I sometimes say they're the, uh, that in the same way that witchy eye is the epic fantasy of the old weird America, that uh, the cunning man is the urban fantasy of the old weird America. Well, that makes sense. Well, now out of booksellers everywhere is uh, the epic fantasy of arcane America. Um, Serpent's Daughter by DJ Butler. Um, yeah. So, so there's, um, how does, all right. So you, you, you mentioned voodoo and um, there's, there's a lot of magic going on here that we're like, for instance, Oliver Cromwell's sorcery is necromancy. Yeah. And uh, how, how does the magic work in the book? Um, and particularly, uh, you've, you've borrowed from American traditions, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, this is like a lot of different kind of magics here. Yes. Um, so some people uh, within the stories practice magic at a kind of a high theoretical level. And they do it um, uh, actually quoting Isaac Newton, but who they're really quoting is Sir James George Fraser in The Golden Bough. Uh, and it's an anthropologist kind of idea of magic, an idea which says, hey, magic is about uh, uh, rules of similarity and rules of contagion. And if you have the ability, if you have the gift, you can, you can cause results in the physical world by uh, by assembling enough influences that are that are contagious to what you want, uh, meaning they you things that have been in contact are always in contact. So if I want to cause harm to you, I can I can cause harm to something that was once in contact with you, um, or things that are similar um, to their to their target or the thing they want to influence. Right. So these are these are two big ideas that that. Uh, you see them both in like a voodoo doll, right? If I want to injure somebody, I make a doll that looks like them and I put their hair in the doll and, you know, a scrap of cloth from their actual clothing and make clothing for the doll. And, and then I can stab the doll and the, my victim feels pain. So uh, Sarah is one of those, but not everybody has that much talent. So, so yeah, I've tried to capture real uh, uh, sort of folk magic practices um, a lot of those you see through, uh, some of them you see through Etienne, for example, voodoo invocations of the, uh, of the Mysteres of the Loa. Um, but, uh, but a lot of them you see through the, the, the perspective of this character, Lumen Walters, who is, a, who is basically a, uh, an eclectic folk magician. He, he, uh, he was never fit out for the plow. His father basically threw him off the farm somewhere in Western Pennsylvania, upstate New York, somewhere when he was young. Um, but uh, so he's been a kind of thief of traditions. Uh, and there's a there's backstory where he talks about um, his involvement in German Braukerei, which is a kind of a, a, a Christian uh, German folk magic that is, is still practiced, right? Especially in kind of Western Pennsylvania, characteristically. Uh, and so he tells us in his, in his head, we, we see the couple pages of backstory where he, there's a blind, uh, Brauker and, and, uh, he refuses to, uh, tell Lumen how his practice works because he's only, his tradition is he only tells people within his own family. So Lumen 
goes and gets his niece who doesn't actually care about uh, this stuff at all and pays her to sit there with her, her blind uncle and pretend she's learning so Lumen can eavesdrop and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, gather together his practices. Uh, so yeah, so Braukerai, for example, uh, or stuff out of kind of the English uh, cunning folk tradition, or um, I use um, the uh, sort of Greco-Roman Neoplatonic uh, magical papyri out of Egypt to be um, sort of move them a little bit in space and time uh, as 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 Memphite. Uh, the Memphite magical tradition, Memphis being the kingdom that is part of the empire and centered around Memphis. Uh, uh, yeah, and all that, uh, everything that came through Freemasonry in there, there. There's a lot of sort of Freemasonry and stuff like Freemasonry in the books as well, you know. Yeah. So it's very gnarly. If you're looking for a setting that's very streamlined and everything is follows yeah. one of four colors or one of five metals. This is not I said this before that, um, I mean, the book is like, what if everything that everybody thought was maybe magic and real in the, in the 1800s was, and that would be your book. <laughs> but so um, let's see. Uh, oh, I was going to ask this. And spirits can inhabit bodies and two or more can be in a body. Like uh, where's Oliver Cromwell and what's he, and, and tell us about those, those partlets quints because they're scary yeah uh so uh at um i always lose track of how many there are uh so I, so uh by the beginning of book four there are three of them left they show up they show up in book uh in book three uh, and they are quintuplets uh and they're sort of featureless their heads are shaved they're they're young men we never learn exactly how young uh, but the, uh, the, the Philadelphia, uh, Academy, Academy of Magic has basically said, uh, these guys, they, they only have one soul, uh, despite having five bodies. Uh, and so they become a kind of device for communicating across. So, uh, so they, uh, they'll, they'll change their facial expressions and, and alter their voice and, and talk together repeating what they're hearing at the other end of the connection. So when we see them, a few of them are brought out, and three are brought out to um, notwithstanding Schmidt's siege of Cahokia in book three, um, and two of them are left uh, behind in, in Philadelphia. Um, some of them come to bad ends. Uh, so, uh, so by the time we are in uh, book three, uh, there, there, are, there are three survivors, and one is, uh, is going to go out west, and the telephone is connected to Simon Sword for reasons that cannot possibly be good. Um, and then the other one is, uh, the other one is, uh, is, is still with Schmidt, uh, who, was, who was the director of the Imperial Ohio Company. She's a, she, right? And she's, she's, she's kind of... Uh, um, uh, the main general of Thomas Penn, I would, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, and the, these twins, they're, they're like a radio sort of for instantaneous communication, and they're um, they're under the control of the emperor at the moment, at least. Yeah, but, and one of them by by the time of book four is physically inhabited by Oliver Cromwell, more or less permanently. Um. Yeah, so there's this telephone system that connects the bad guys as they are making a stronger alliance and like Palantirs in a way, also. Oh, yeah. yes, 
but but it can work uh, backwards and really mess with your mind as as Aragorn found out. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, one gets the feeling that that Simon Short Sword knows more about magic than even Oliver Cromwell in the uh, since he's been around forever. <laughs> so. Been around a long, long time, yeah. and, and he's intrinsically magical, right? Cromwell is sort of a Cromwell is really sort of a stand-in for science uh, in some ways, right? He by art wants to extend human life. That's basically who Cromwell is. Yeah. So, and there's problems. All right. So Sarah's at Cahokia and, and things start, and when things go bad with her, they go bad with Cahokia because she's intimately connected to this sort of serpent God goddess um, that, I mean, the thing is laid out like a serpent, right? That's the yeah. point of it. Um, yeah. And there's a, this is an old idea. Uh, you find this in the Bible and in other old Hebrew texts that uh that the that a city you see this throughout isaiah for example where the where isaiah addresses the city of jerusalem as a woman uh and um and so this is an old idea that the manifestation of cities was was a woman and 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 sarah is in some sense is the city so uh when simon sword begins sending kind of earthquake attacks that that rupture the city it's also physically harming sarah who is already uh, already fragile. And so then kind of working back the other way along the link, yes, if Sarah dies, what happens, right? What, what, what great direct catastrophe is going to, is going to overtake the city. Um, and, uh, and, and in, well, that's spoilers book four. I won't say that. Well, it's got problems within as well. There's the ladies of the 10 dance, um, yeah. who, who have always been a thorn in Sarah's side as well. They're the, they used to rule the place, right, or something like that. They're yeah. Co, co, anyway, go. Yeah, yeah. So there's this. So this kind of connect, connect, pick up again the thread I was saying earlier, right? So, so as Sarah kind of comes to learn about this sort of goddess and these her people, her father's people, who are to her all out. She's an outsider. She's she's raised more or less a new light Christian in Nashville. Uh the uh you know the story is complicated and you never hear an objective story you hear the story from different people's point of view but there is an old dispute that centers around uh Cahokia's goddess and um and there are reformers and, and one of her one of her advisors is is a, the the metropolitan of Cahokia Cahokia's sort of head christian priest is uh, a guy who's very much on the side of Hey, the uh, uh, this is not a goddess; it's an ancient demon, and we have subdued it. And we should not now try to make an alliance with it or be its friend. Um, Sarah, nevertheless, ascends the serpent throne and connects with the goddess. Um, but it, but it, but it turns out uh, that that on the other side, you have you have these um, priestesses, uh, and they're sort of the principal of them are the seven ladies of tendance and, and, and tendance is the, the, the service of, uh, uh, of waiting on the goddess, uh, which is to say dressing her, washing her, anointing her, feeding her in her, uh, in her Holy of Holies. Uh, and so they, there's a seven day week and, and these seven ladies, each of them with their sept, their, their followers in turn waits on, um, uh, waits on the goddess and and the queen or king uh who who is enthroned and um 
And some of these ladies of tendance, it turns out, have a vision of the goddess that kind of sounds a lot like the demon. <laughs> so, so, uh, so although in book three, uh, Sarah very much comes down on the side of, I'm going to connect with the goddess, she then finds that some of these priestesses actually uh, are pretty savage about blood sacrifice and, and uh, you know, kind of violent castration uh, of, of male worshipers of, of this goddess. Uh, and they have some leverage because there are uh, cult and magical secrets that they know that she does not, uh, and because they have influence. Uh, and uh, so, so having kind of won the struggle against one side uh, in book three, in book four, she's now struggling uh, against the other side. And she's kind of working her way, trying to find what is more or less a middle ground um, between two sides of this, uh, of this, of this uh, theological war. But it's not abstract theology, right? Because it's a theology that is how she accesses the power that has saved and continues to save the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and we have some other, all right, so Sarah's saving Sarah from, and thus saving the kingdom from falling is, is basically the big part of the book, Serpent Daughter. Um, and and the, the and it has to do with these these other six kingdoms that have to somehow take part in a right. So that's a big s s plot. Um, there's some subplots that are very cool. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the Kathy Filmer, uh, Bill Lee subplot and Landon and and uh, and, and all that. That because that was a really it was a touching uh, subplot to me. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I like writing that. I, I like the, I'll talk about the Calvin Calhoun subplot too, which I, I really find. Mm -hmm. And there's Calvin, yeah, walking around. So, uh, and Calvin is, he was the one that was in love. He's kind of in love with Sarah, right? Yeah. He, he is still in love with Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. He's not lucky. He's not going to be lucky in that regard. Well, I mean, well he's competing against the Mississippi. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> a little rough. Um, yeah, let me talk about about Kathy and Bill. So, um, so so Bill was uh, Bill's a, a pistolier, and a, he, he's a he's a cavalier. He's a gentleman of the Chesapeake of, of North Carolina, although he would say Jones Land. And, um, and there's a great map in the book, by the way. So all of this will you can, a reader can always check back and see what it is that David has. Um, has transformed. Anyway, go on. Yes. I'm mostly pretty faithful to the real world ge geography, though I've made a couple of large uh, changes and, um, and and once in a while an egregious mistake. Um, so uh, yeah, so uh, he he was um, he was basically the head of the bodyguard corps of Sarah's father, uh, and uh, and and was 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 present, not a participant, uh, when when when. Uh, Sarah's father was murdered, and uh, when when Hannah gave birth to three children, three sort of faithful friends took those children and hid them. And uh, one of those uh, one of those faithful friends was was Captain Sir William Johnston Lee, uh, and he took the child, uh, actually Nathaniel, the, the boy of the three children, and hid him with the in the household of the Earl of Johnsland. And we we first meet. Captain Sir William Johnston Lee as Bad Bill, because what subsequently happens to Bill is he uh, he gets in a duel uh, with the Earl's son uh, and kills him. 
the Earl's son, Richard. And, uh, and therefore he's exiled and he flees to New Orleans where for 15 years or so he makes a living as a gunfighter, uh, as a thug. And that's the capacity we first meet him in. And he's, he, Bill's a guy who is um, like, it, like at his heart, what Bill needs is a flag to march under, right? He, he had one and it's been taken away and that's left him as this kind of rudderless, uh thug just knocking around uh you know w- wishing for for better days um he's, he's the kind of guy that really likes to be devoted to a th- to a cause or a person or and a he will give his all for that yeah that's exactly right and so he's actually very uh so he's faith he's basically faithful to his wife for these 14 years even though she does not write him back he's writing letters to uh, sally she never writes him uh, even even though he's sort of falling in love with uh, this woman Kathy uh, in New Orleans, but they have a, 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 platon, a flirtatious but platonic relationship because because he sees himself as as, as bound and, and, and loyal. So um, so he and Kathy end up uh, joining Sarah's banner, right? Sarah sort of meta- metaphorically raising her flag is a is a is a watershed moment for Bill because I've got direction again. Uh, and, uh, so he, um, he becomes the, the, the general of her forces, um, uh, in, in Cahokia. Now, um, Kathy, uh, is also, uh, a, an exile from the Chesapeake, uh, uh, and, and her backstory is you get hints of it in the first three books, but you, you really, it comes out here uh, in book four. Um, but if you, uh, so I, I will tell a little, a little bit of spoilers here. Um, Bill, uh, while he's in exile, thinks about his wife and he has daughters, but especially thinks about his son, uh, and his son, Charles. And he thinks about, you know, Charles is old enough. He's got his commission by now. He's, he's, a, he's sure he's a fighting man. And, you know, he, he, he imagines this and, and those things actually turn out to be true. Of, of his son Charles is, is a is a good guy he's a noble uh, in the in the service of the Earl of John's land he's a, I think he's a lieutenant I can't remember he's a he's an officer a cavalryman um, but what happens in in book two um, is he's killed uh, he's killed because of a uh, he's killed uh, in sort of a, an act of fear uh, that's really precipitated by the very hierarchical relationship with these sort of young men around the Earl of John's land, uh, where George is the heir, and then you've got, uh, and the only surviving legitimate son of the Earl, and then you've got uh, these foundling children who have names like Chapel or Temple uh, to uh, indicate, you know, we don't know their father, but they're being raised as, as part as part of the Earl's household. Uh, and one of those is Nathaniel, who is the, uh, who is the boy that, uh, that Bill hit, who was Sarah's brother. And that's, and that's why we sort of see into this conflict. Uh, and the other one is a guy named Landon Chapel, who is uh, understood to be one of the Earl's bastards. Uh, but, but George just takes it out of Landon who in turn turns around and really uh, takes that out of Nathaniel. And there's just this blood, like chickens, they're bloody pecking on each other. 
in in a strict order. Um, and uh, and after an episode in which Landon really uh, abuses Nathaniel, Charles, who uh, who is a bit outside of that pecking order because he's really an adult and he's you know he's got his commission, steps in in rage to confront uh, Landon, and Landon kills him on the spot, shoots him in the head. So so. Bill's son, whom he idolizes enormously, has been killed. Uh, you would say manslaughter, not, not premeditated murder, right? But in a, in a moment of real fear and, and stress by this guy, Landon Chapel, who then at the end of book three shows up uh, after Nathaniel has healed the Earl. And as I'm saying all this stuff, man, a lot of things has happened in this book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> after Nathaniel has healed the Earl, Landon and a small corps of riders come to Cahokia to be, you know, part of its defenses and represent this ally. Um, well, it turns out that Landon Chapel is, is the, the, the son of uh, the uh, Earl and Kathy. And the reason that she had to leave is because she had the Earl's illegitimate son. And so the son was taken into the Earl's care. She was hooked up into a, a sort of forced sh shotgun marriage with a local teacher and sent west to just get out of the earldom uh and be out of sight um, all right so kathy is at this point um uh bill and kathy are in love and they're they're going to get married and bill is, has reached the point where he's 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 let go of that old thing yep. um and um landon is sort of a protege because he's uh and, and so you got a you got a real uh, sort of uh, Sophoclean even uh, thing yeah. here because this is the guy that killed his son although he doesn't know it yet, um, and, and this plays out. And it plays out, and it's uh, it's yeah. a cool cool part of the book. Um, well, tell us about the other pens as well because they all come in. Um, I yeah. really like your uh, your Catalan pirate also, and, and Margaret's hanging with her, right? Uh, yeah, so, and, and let me not forget Calvin, too, I want to say. Yes, and Calvin. So, so let's go to Calvin. Calvin uh, grew up with Sarah. He is Andy Calhoun's uh, son. Grandson. And, and Andy's been, been done away with badly. Andy gets killed. Andy gets killed in this book um, uh, badly. So, uh, so we see there's sort of two for, for, for Calvin. Yeah. So Calvin's, he's very, he's very proud. That, this was the, and his father, they, he grew up with Sarah, our heroine, and she was hidden with his father. That's where she was during her growing up times. So, yeah. So he, he has mountains her and then, uh, but that's not cool. You can't be in love with your cousin. And then suddenly it became okay because she wasn't really his blood kin. He was the, the elector sent him uh, to kind of watch her on the road. Um, and uh, that's sort of, that's sort of the beginning of a series of, of uh, steps for, for Calvin in, um, uh, in his ascent into sort of becoming a leader of men. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, so he, he successfully, you know, uh, accompanies Sarah to, uh, to Hokia, gets her uh, onto the throne, uh, has a rupture at the end of book two. Um, and so, which sends him, uh, he, 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 he kills someone, uh, on, 
on the serpent throne before, but it was just a great, an act of great sacrilege. Just for Sarah, he does it uh, in a heated moment. It's not, it's not, it's not planned. Uh, and and yet, when Sarah makes contact at the end of book two with her goddess for the first time, he can't be there. He's excluded. So his heart's broken, and and he leaves. So in book three, we see him uh, starting to uh, engineer the uh, impeachment of Thomas Penn. Uh, and, and that continues into book four, um, until, uh, until Iron Andy is murdered, uh, in a, in a trick, which is intended to kill, uh, Calvin as well. And so, uh, so then I got to, so then I got to write the sort of, uh, the leadership contest scenes that I had a lot of fun with, where Cal, having had all these experiences, now steps up and says, uh, well, we need a new elector. Someone needs to be the head of the Calhoun family uh, and kind of, kind of what he does uh, to, to, become, to become that man, um, which, uh, which I had a lot of fun writing. Uh, so, uh, so the other two siblings um, are a lot of fun. These, by the way, these characters are all, are all actually rooted in my own children. Um, uh, I've got a daughter with eyes of two different color, and actually the, 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 the phrase witchy eye is something I started calling her when she was about eight weeks old and we first noticed this. So, really? I've never, I haven't heard you say that before. That's cool. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and my What's son... What's her name? Her name, is, uh, her name is Callie, actually. Uh, my son, William, uh, in utero, had his head pressed up against one wall of the womb and his ear was pinned flat. So when he was born, he had one ear like this, and it slowly came out. And if you look at him, he's got one ear flat against his head and one ear that sticks out nearly perpendicular. And then my third child has, it's a recessive trait in my wife's family. The rest of us have more or less straight hair, you know, little curl, whatever. But she has like real, like white girl fro hair. And um, so, so they- I these, think I've seen her, I've met her, I believe. Yeah, so, I think you have. Anyway. Um, um, I met one of them <laughs> of the brood. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so Nathaniel has been raised in John's land. Nathaniel has been tormented by voices um, all his life through his through his witchy ear, which in my initial pitch, I think I even called book two witchy ear, but that's not a very good title, so I, I changed it. So, um, uh, Nathaniel, uh, it, 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 he's he. He's sort of thought of as maybe being mad or tormented, but um, but in book two he is healed uh, in the traditional shamanic route, which is that he ascends into the sky. He is remade by being torn to pieces by cosmic ogres and rebuilt with iron bones, uh, and he gains he comes he comes back with various taboos. Uh, he wears his hat backwards and his coat inside out. He can't ride horses. Uh, he can't use a blade. Um, and he has to, he has to do these things. Um, it, it, it's not just like um, a quirk. A quirk. Uh, it, it's how his magic works. How his magic, he can't, he can't choose otherwise. Yeah. And, um, uh, but he also gains the ability to travel in uh, great distances. He can travel across the spirit plane. He can see the spiritual the essential reality of things and interact them, which allows him to heal people. Uh, it also means he can sort of be in two places at one time when he, because he can inhabit 
physical bodies and do limited uh, unconscious people and and you know do limited things with them and when he is in the uh, he sees it as a big grassy plain under a starlit sky that's always always night the a shadowy bear which is in some sense another aspect of him appears and and guards his body so uh, we sort of see the recovery of him in book in book two uh, uh book three uh, uh margaret uh is is also kind of brought into the fold the third child and she's she was hidden with a by, with a catalan pirate and smuggler uh named montserrat ferre quintana and um and uh Monse is uh uh fierce uh and a, a pretty flamboyant lesbian uh and as you know one of the sort of pieces that's uh, I don't want to overstate how much this is a part of the book, but but it, it, apparently uh, uh, she was uh, more than just a friend to Hannah Penn, um, and there's so we get some hints of like some some tensions and some some unusual elements in in the relationship of Sarah's parents. Um, so, but she aside she raised, from just eating acorns to become pregnant, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Aside anyway. from that one. That one uh so uh so monse like like bill uh is is as a character um and uh she has uh, when we meet her in book uh in book do we meet her book two or book three basically um no we meet her in book two that's right so uh we see her a little bit her and and uh and and margaret uh who all, all three of these children are raised without awareness of their of their inheritance. Um, all three have a sort of a curse uh, that is also connected with kind of a blessing or a superpower. Um, Margaret is the Incredible Hulk, or in like a, in an idiom she would recognize, she's sort of Samson. Uh, when, when she gets uh, her dander up, when she is uh, angry and hurt and scared enough, uh, including marginally to losing control, although it's not, it's not quite like the Hulk. She does not become an animal. Um, her hair stands up uh, and she becomes very physically strong and impervious uh, to physical harm, or as far as we can tell, impervious. Uh, we see this first at the beginning of book two, uh, not the beginning, but the end of book two, where she basically sinks the ship she's on uh, she's been separated from uh, Monse and is being taken uh, to be traded among the powers of the empire as a, as a bargaining chip. Um, and she, she breaks out and, and wrecks the ship. Um, so in book three, Nathaniel uh, uh, goes in uh, another character, Jakob Hope, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and frees um, Margaret from her captors uh a couple of the sort of plots that involve them are the subplots in 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 book four here um nathaniel uh and nathaniel has realized his powers only really work for him he, he is really a healer if he tries to do other things if he tries to act like a spy uh or if he tries to use his abilities to to inflict you know harm uh he he feels ill and weak and he loses his powers he, he is a healer and he, he decides, you know, the thing I really should do is go heal my uncle Thomas Penn. He's, 
you know, he's the source. Uh, this is the side of the conflict that, that Nathaniel is seeing much more than the Simon Sword side. And so we see over several attempts, uh, Nathaniel and his sister kind of going in uh, and turning it closer to Thomas to, um, in Nathaniel's paradigm, his vocabulary, to heal him, to relieve him whatever the burden is that's making him do these horrible things, his desire to kill us for, for one thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of a plot thread. The, um, on, a, on a subplot level, one of the things that happens is there's a break between, um, between Margaret and Nathaniel as a result because she starts to feel used. Uh, I'm just like the bear. I just, all I do is protect you while you go do everything. Uh, and that's not entirely fair, but it's not entirely unfair either. Uh, and so, uh, and so that's, that's part of the tension uh, in book four. Yeah. I mean, this is just, we could go on and on because this is this vast tapestry you've created of a, it's, it's beautiful, vast tapestry, um, magic filled. I, I, you know, I just sort of, I was picturing it, it would be this tapestry that's, that's twinkling with, with all the threads you've run through it. Um, and all centered on our, our main character, who is the queen of, of this place in the center of North America, who's, um, who's, troubled by enemies without and enemies within who's fighting it all and has, you know, this huge fighting uh, deep spirit that, that allows her to keep going. Um, it's a great book. Uh, <laughs> Serpent Daughter is, I mean, this, and this is where she's queen and this is the place you could easily come into the series and, and, and find her. Um, what else can we say about it? Um, I don't We've covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we've covered a lot yeah um, what are you what are you working on now well um so uh two things one um i have written uh on spec a novel which i will send to you guys and hope that you like it soon um soon probably is not earlier than december but it is a uh it's a um, it's not entirely on spec in that I've discussed it with, with Tony W. a couple of times. So it won't be like a complete out of the blue surprise, but uh, it's a sort of a science fiction story. Um, uh, I don't know what a sort of means. It's a, it's a science fiction novel uh, with a uh, backdrop that is modeled on the East India Company. So uh, if you read the history of Britain's East India Company, and there's, a, there's a, a, you know different perspectives on it, but but there's a there's a fundamental conflict or problem, which is you know Britain gave a commercial enterprise the right to behave like a state. It gave it a monopoly on violence, and that led to some uh, w without having the sort of democratic or other constitutional checks, and and that read that led to some some real problems. So um, so the the setting here is uh something like early 23rd century uh and uh we've been at space for a while and we're you know we're a few systems we're, we're operating but but in particular it turns out there's a there's a black hole around the planet jupiter uh that can only be opened with the the application of of power so it's expensive to go through it and it gets to a system that's something like uh, 40 light years away from earth where there are several habitable worlds. And the US federal government uh, charters a corporation and basically gives them control over this gate, right? And effectively therefore control over 
uh, over that uh, over that system. And um, and the so the story is about a uh, about a about an accountant uh, who's this is his first job right out of school. He's in debt from school. He married young. He's got two kids, so he's he's leveraged in sort of every possible sense. And he got this very exciting uh, opportunity, his first job, which is to go be an accountant for the Sarovar company and Sarovar system. Uh, and he gets there and pretty quickly starts starts to see that you know uh, it's not just Sarovari goods that are that are bottlenecked by the wormhole. It's also information, and actually. Uh, the company is is pretty rapacious and pretty corrupt, uh, and he's put in this position uh, uh, of having to try to make a living uh, without without losing his soul. Uh, and he's caught between sort of some corrupt traders who are running guns and uh, uh, two different groups of natives. There's some human settlers who preceded the grant to the company and are still on the ground. And there are some native species um, and uh, trying to find uh, peaceful solutions. It's, a, it's about a guy who's not a fighter. He's a, he's a trader and an accountant uh, and uh, in, in, a, in a ray guns and aliens kind of world. Cool, cool. Well, so, all right, early British Empire in space, <laughs> early East India Company. <laughs> Sounds very cool. Uh, we'll look forward to that. But uh, out now, at booksellers everywhere is Serpent Daughter, a very different book, a a historical fantasy, vast tapestry of magic and wonder by D.J. Butler. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for talking with us about Serpent Daughter. Hey, thanks, Tony. Had a great time. That was part two of a two-part interview with DJ Butler talking about Serpent Daughter. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. System Defense HQ. City of Columbia, Beowulf. Beowulf system. Sir, they've altered course, Dunstan Myers announced sharply. They're breaking off their run on Cassandra, and they've increased acceleration to 468 gravities. I see it, Cheryl. McAvoy crossed the huge dimly lit chamber to stand beside the ops officer, watching Vector shift and flow as Ghost Rider reported the Sollies changing heading. 
and he frowned as he wondered what the hell they were up to now. Their initial velocity of 600 kps towards Cassandra had increased to 12,236 kps since their arrival. That meant that at their initial acceleration, it would have taken them 48 minutes just to decelerate to zero and start back the way they'd come. But that wasn't what they were doing. They'd turned directly out system instead, at right angles to their current vector, and they'd started their run from so far out that they were still barely six million kilometers inside the limit. With that acceleration, bending their vector that sharply, they could be back across the wall in barely 27 minutes. And if all they're really doing is running the hell away, that's fine, he thought. Maybe this is a panic reaction. Maybe they didn't expect to see Apollo coming at them at all, and now that it has, they're headed for the high timber. But it's hard to imagine they could have been that stupid. They had to realize we'd deploy MDMs to cover our critical star systems. The acceleration change does suggest they've just cut loose whatever pods they were towing, though, and they haven't launched a damn thing back at us, which sure looks like a panic reaction, plain and simple. If I were them, and if I didn't care any more about civilian casualties than whatever bastard came up with Buccaneer and Parthian shot, I'd have launched everything I had before I turned away on the theory that even inaccurate birds had to be more effective than birds that were never launched at all. But they didn't do that. Or at least it sure looks like they just jettisoned their pods without even trying to launch. Does that mean they've decided Parthion shot was a bad idea? That could make sense after what happened in Mesa, if they want to try to convince people they hold the moral high ground. But it also suggests they really thought they could get close enough to Cassandra to target their fire accurately. So does that mean Hamish was right? Were they as surprised as we were by what happened to Mycroft? Or were they really dumb enough to not anticipate system defense MDMs at all? Or did they... He shook himself. There was no way in hell he could answer any of those questions. All he could do now was wait and hope the POWs could answer them for him later. SLNS Quebec. Task Force 790, Beowulf System. We have a second launch, sir. Liang Tao Rutgers said quietly, and Vincent Capriotti looked across at him, then checked the time. Fourteen minutes had passed since the Defender's first launch, and he smiled in ironic amusement. The first launch had gone ballistic six minutes and 65,766,900 kilometers after launch. That sounded a hell of a lot like two separate drives with pretty close to standard endurance, which confirmed quite a lot of speculation back home. No one had any notion, yet, how it might be done, but it certainly sounded like the Mantis had managed to graft separate sets of impeller nodes into the same missile body without their eating each other before they were successfully brought online. Assuming that was what was actually happening, and if the missiles packed in a third stage with identical performance, they should resume their acceleration in roughly three more minutes and arrive three minutes after that, just over 19 minutes after launch. At least now I know how big an interval they figure their FTL systems can handle without the dispersed platforms, he thought almost whimsically. If they could have closed that interval any, they damned well would have done it. CIC makes it another 5,000, sir. Very impressive, Capriotti replied. On the other hand, we'll be across the limit and gone by the time they can reach us. I'm sure they can figure that out for themselves. 
So this is probably intended to encourage us to keep moving right along, and to pick off any cripples, I suppose. But in the meantime, he looked at another display. Beowulf system. 19,913,317 kilometers from Beowulf orbit. The Astas had been launched 57 minutes earlier. They'd started their journey at an acceleration of a mere 15,000 kps squared, barely a crawl compared to the 46,000 kps squared a Mark 23 turned out at even its lowest acceleration bracket. On the other hand, they were far, far stealthier than any MDM ever built. In fact, they were no more than the mating of a slightly modified Explorator Recon drone with a cataphract C second stage. They retained all of the Explorator's original stealthiness, and their acceleration rates had been stepped down a bit further to make them even harder to detect. The result was something that was almost impossible to detect, even under acceleration, at ranges lower than 70 to 80 light seconds. Once it went ballistic, it was effectively invisible even to active sensors at anything above 500,000 kilometers, and Operation Fabius had taken steps to make them even harder to spot by sending a host of regular reconnaissance drones ahead of them, with an acceleration rate 30% higher than theirs, programmed to spread out and chatter back and forth. No one on the other side had noticed that the talkative recon drone stealth systems were working at no more than 80% of normal efficiency, and no one had suspected that their sole purpose was to attract any sensor systems to their impeller wedges, rather than the weaker, stealthier ones coming along behind. Nor had anyone on the other side realized Vincent Capriotti's battlecruisers hadn't been towing cataphracts when they crossed the hyperlimit. All their towing capacity had been devoted to the Astas, and their relatively low acceleration rate after the Astas launched had been designed solely to convince the system's defenders they were towing heavy cataphract loads for the attack on Cassandra they had absolutely no intention of making. The last thing TF-790 had wanted Skywatch or System Defense HQ to realize was that it had never intended to penetrate more than 4,500,000 kilometers inside the limit before turning and braking for the safety of the Alpha Bands at 90% of maximum power. Vincent Capriotti had nourished his private doubts about the elaborate deception plan, but it had worked almost perfectly. It wouldn't have been enough to save TF-790 from Mycroft without the unexpected assistance of Silver Bullet. For that matter, it might turn out that it still wasn't enough. The ops plan had worked to get all the bits and pieces to where they needed to be at the critical moments, however, and there was a certain irony in that. If the Mason alignment had realized that would happen, they wouldn't have needed to reveal Silver Bullet's existence or suggest their direct involvement in Fabius. Unfortunately, Benjamin Detweiler and his planners hadn't known how the original Fabius plans would be modified once Winston Kingsford realized what Asta could do. And so they'd expected the attackers to require all the help they could get on their run into the target. And the knowledge that there had been no way to hide their involvement, whatever happened, at least from the Grand Alliance, had made it even easier for Benjamin and his brothers to decide to tweak the original operations plan. The impeller endurance of the interference-running recon drones was measured in hours, even in days if it was husbanded properly. Ahasta's endurance was barely 10 minutes. At the end of that brief interval, its impellers went down forever, and it sliced onward through the void at a constant velocity of 88,260 kps, as invisible as the vacuum about it. But now, AIs aboard that shoal of invisible assassins 
noted that the time had almost come. They checked their targeting criteria and instructions against the take from their own sensors. Not nearly so good as a regular recon drones, but far better than any previous generation of Solarian missile, even the improved cataphracts had ever mounted. A few corrections were necessary, and they made them. Then they began the prep cycle. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the beautiful, smoldering, golden-laden remains of the U.S. National Bank shut down with Jacksonian fury and aplomb. Plus, thanks and praise to D.J. Butler, author of Serpent Daughter. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Having taken her father's throne, Sarah Calhoun has fallen out with one of her best allies, and her brother Nathaniel heads into Imperial Philadelphia with a reckless plan. Her uncle Thomas, armed with new powers and new allies, aims to remove Sarah from her throne and from the world of the living. To survive and to gain the strength she needs to fight an impossible war, Sarah must unite the Mound Builder Kings to enact an ancient rite that will propel her beyond mortality. Servant Daughter by T.J. Butler is the newest entry in the Dragon Award-winning Witchy War series from Bane Books at BaneBooks.com. Um...